You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Hello, Magnetic Marketing members and uh, Dan Kennedy aficionados. It is Darren Spindler along with Dan Kennedy himself. Dan, today's a big day. It's the release of Why Advertising Fails and How to Make Yours Succeed. So, um, you know, you're known as the direct response marketing guru, the guru to the gurus. Why do we write a book about advertising? So, advertising is really the first step of the marketing process, right? And so if, you, if that's screwed up, everything is screwed up. Uh, almost every business advertises, um, and most advertising fails. Um, some of it, nobody knows that it's failing, um, either by intent or by inability to measure what it is that they are doing. But a lot of advertising, the business owner recognizes he's not getting the results that he wants and um, really does not know why, will tend to blame the media more than he will anything else um, and decide that whatever that media is, every door direct mail, uh, uh, YouTube videos, whatever doesn't work for his particular kind of business. Uh, But most advertising fails. Um, There's an enormous amount of money spent on it. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of people uh, get rich in uh, in providing it. Um, uh, And um, uh, many of them mislead people um, for their own benefit or out of their own Ignorance. You know, David Ogilvie, one of the really great ad men of the, if you know the TV show Mad Men of the yep. Mad Men era, um, Ogilvie, well, on more than one occasion this happened, but he enraged his peers uh, at a big advertising awards banquet by, set, by defining creativity as the only worthwhile creativity in advertising is what sells. And if you really just pay attention to all the advertising you see on television, the advertising you see in magazines, the advertising you see on the web, the truth of the matter is most of it is disconnected from selling. Um, And a lot of advertising is creative for the sake of being creative. Dan, why don't we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, one of the terms that you've coined um, long ago is uh, advertising victim. And many entrepreneurs and business owners become one. How do they go about avoiding becoming the next advertising victim? So um, um, Robin just made a case at the end of her segment about um, knowledge of fundamentals, right? So most small business owners become the owner of the business they own by first being the doer of that thing. So the plumber finally winds up with a plumbing company. The auto mechanic winds up with a repair shop, um, et cetera. Um, the, de- the higher level, um, uh, they go master their clinical or technical skills. So the dentist has gone to school for however many years, 
too long. <laughs> um, uh, the dentist has gone to school for however many years. The lawyer has gone to school for however many years in order to master their clinical or technical skills. And so all the business owner's focus is on those fundamentals, right? How to do what it is that this business does, or to put it another way, on the fundamentals of the business's deliverables. Now, there's a range of excellence to good to barely sufficient to mediocre and all of that, but they, there's very little emphasis on the fundamentals of advertising and what follows behind it. Therefore, most business owners, all the way up to most CEOs of big companies, are very vulnerable right? because they don't know why advertising fails, <laughs> and they basically don't know why it succeeds. Um, in the publishing industry, um, every author will tell you, um, and, and I've been with seven publishers from the biggest Simon & Schuster to small. There's virtually nobody in the book publishing industry who knows why books sell or why books don't sell. They have no idea. <laughs> Uh, 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 they now they understand content. They understand what is a good book and what isn't a good book. They have a lot of opinions about that. Uh, they generally understand grammar. Um, they know how to produce a book. They know how it sells. So they're often victimized. So you're very vulnerable to being an advertising victim if you don't understand what makes advertising work and what doesn't make it work and how to hold it, um, content, media, all of it, uh, accountable. And so now whoever is selling um, media or ideas, right, uh, if they're really good at selling their idea, or they're really good at selling their media, even though it could be complete nonsense, period, <laughs> or it could be inappropriate for you yep. and your business at, in the situation you are in at the moment, they are going to succeed, and you're going to be victimized because you don't know any better, Right. If you, if you take, so my two analogies are this. If you never educate your kid from the ground up about don't get in cars with strangers even if they have a lost dog and candy, <laughs> okay? um, do not get in a van with no windows and go on a cross-country trip with your boyfriend. Um, yeah, I know, too soon, but still, um, um, uh, et cetera. If you get pulled over by a police officer, don't spook the cop. Behave. Hands on the wheel, window down, wait to go get the thing out of the glove compartment until he's there. All right. If you don't do this education, 
and you now send the kid out into the forest, the kid is going to get victimized because he doesn't know any better, right? If you take a domesticated animal, anyone you want, our dog, a domesticated cat, a domesticated horse, a domesticated parrot, and you turn it loose into the wild, it gets eaten, right? Because it doesn't know how not to be victimized. Same thing with a business owner or a CEO. If they don't understand why advertising succeeds and why advertising fails, they are almost certainly going to get victimized. They are the child being sent out into the world uh, with no knowledge of fundamentals. Dan, one of the things that you know, you've taught a long time is that if somebody is doing or everybody is doing something, you should be looking to do the opposite uh, and that you need to be more skeptical about everything, especially media right now. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, so advertising is often driven by uh, popular trends and um, um, uh, monkey see, monkey do uh, simplicity. So um, if somebody um, uh, does a funny ad in your category of business, if you're a local in your community, um, then you want a funny ad. <laughs> and candidly, the ad agency knows it, and they'll sell you a funny ad, uh, regardless of whether you should have a funny ad or not. We had a whole period of time in the 80s and 90s in the auto business where almost every market had a funny auto dealer. They were all derivative of a guy named Cal Worthington in Southern California. And Cal did his own commercials with a big cowboy hat and goofy stuff, animals. And um, uh, If you find a better price and we give you, I'll eat a bug. <laughs> and, and, and Cal Worthington sold a ton of cars. So simplistically, car dealers all across the country decided... He was selling a ton of cars because of his goofy ads. Um, of course, there was a whole complex collection of reasons why Cal was the number one auto dealer in California. Uh, but so all across the country, you saw copycats of these ads. In Phoenix, where I lived, we had a guy named Tex Earnhardt. And Tex wrote a bull, like the bull I'm on the picture of. And... Um, uh, and Texas TV commercial was he's sitting on his giant bull and one thing you won't find at a Texas R&R dealership is bull <laughs> and you know and everybody got the joke it was funny you know uh, but agency sold this to car dealers all across the country based on a couple of examples right so that happens right uh, advertising uh, media gets sold to people again by monkey see, monkey do, in an industry or in a community, in a peer community of some kind. The industry you're in, um, the local competitive environment you're in, um, people start using whatever 
Right? So they start uh, doing Facebook Live. And they start doing Facebook Live, I don't know, three times a week. Uh, pretty soon, somebody is saying to all their competitors, you gotta, you got to do this too. And everybody goes, well, okay, right? It's the way all media has been sold. It's the worst reason. It's the worst reason of all to buy media. But so, when Yellow Pages was really popular, ninety percent of the advertisers bought Yellow Pages advertising because their competitors did. They didn't have any other rationale for doing it. In reality, it's just we have to do it because Charlie Brown's doing it, <laughs> right? And that's the worst reason of all to use a media. So advertising is very um, Me Too oriented, uh, very derivative oriented, and so people follow um, what they perceive to be the leader, and often that'll be who's spending the most money, who they see advertising the most, but. That's a false measurement of success because you don't know, number one, are they measuring? Do they know? Number two, are they playing the same game you are? Um, And uh, 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 number three, will five doing it all get superior results that maybe one is getting. So there's all sorts of reasons that this is a flawed approach to advertising, but it is what happens. Dan, one of the things that you've you know long advocated for, including back in all, all the way into sales letters, uh, is that when you're going to write your sales letter or your ad, you should write the very best ad possible and then go backwards and figure out how that you make that thing. You want to talk about that process and why you want to write these over-the-top ads and then figure out, geez, can we actually fulfill this? Yeah, well, so the direct response industry, direct response people, who, again, to quote Ogilvy, are the only ones who really know what they're doing because they have complete math. And they tend to really understand psychology. So the direct response people this is their normal modus operandi. So my time in direct response taught it to me very quickly. If if we're setting out to do a TV infomercial, there may be an existent core product. There may not be. But even if there is, the the marketing team tends to ignore it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to do a new skincare product that makes wrinkles go away on the neck. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, we're going to write the most incredible 28-minute sales presentation that anybody's ever imagined, <laughs> right? And then we're going to turn around to the product people and say, here, figure out how to match this. That's actually the norm in direct response. It's not the norm anywhere else, right? 
the norm anywhere else is the author goes and writes his book that he thinks is an important and great book. And he spends two years writing his book. And then he finally gets around to the pregnant question of how in the devil are we going to sell these things. things. (laughs) And now he takes the finished thing to an ad agency, a marketing agency, a PR agency, and they start from being stuck with what he built, having no real regard for what does the market want, what's an underserved need, uh, what will resonate with people. That's not what he did. The same thing's true of every product, right, in every product category. So the chiropractor creates his practice the way he thinks he should have a practice. He doesn't go focus group, different groups of prospective patients in the community, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't start with a kind of a blank slate. About, so there's a guy years ago when I did a lot of work with chiropractic. He talked to hundreds of patients um, while he had four bare walls and said, what do you like least about going to the doctor? And almost unanimously, people said, we hate having an appointment and getting there and then being kept waiting. Right? It pisses people off. Right? And the more affluent they are, the madder they are because their time has value. Uh, the older they are, the madder they are because they see it as a sign of disrespect. It's the, so the idea is you can wait forever because you're old and you don't have anything else to do, <laughs> right? Well, seriously. So, like, you go to the, I mean, I have to now go a couple times every few months to a couple of medical places. And I know the attitude is, Uh, you're old, you can wait as long as you want, you don't have anything to do but die, right? (laughs) What's the hurry? Uh, And and that makes me mad, right? (laughs) So to a person, this is what they said. So then he intelligently said to himself, how do I create a product, in this case a chiropractic practice, for which we can advertise the thing they really want? Guaranteed, no waiting. Period. Yep. In fact, we don't even have a waiting room. Now, then he had to figure out, okay, how the hell do you have a practice with no waiting room <laughs> and no waiting? It's impossible, <laughs> right? You can't possibly stay perfectly on time all the time, right? Because Mary took too long to get dressed, and you're five minutes behind. I mean, you know, you can't. But he figured out what the ad was. Then he went and built the product, which in this case was a great big room with um, um, uh, automated uh, massage chairs in it in a big circle. And so the first thing everybody did when they arrived for their appointment 
was get stuck in and reclined in a automated massage chair. And the staff learned to set the timer based on how much time they needed before they could get this person in to see the doc, right? So there was no waiting. Yep. Now, hardly anybody thinks this way except direct response people, right? We think about what will make this an irresistible offer. Now, it's up to you. I do this with clients all the time. So I'll write the ad or the sales letter that I think encompasses the no waiting room practice, the irresistible offer that is the thing everybody wants or will want as soon as it's shown to them. Then I say to the client, to the best extent that you can, figure out how you can fulfill all this stuff I just wrote into existence. And if you can't figure out something, we'll have to modify it. But believe me, you'll be best served by re-engineering your product, your business, your service to match the ad I just did, right? And so people start from a bad place, right? I've already got this thing. I built it. Now we got to fit you, the agency, you got to figure out how to sell it. Now, they're immediately handicapped, right? Um, So the difference between college football and pro football for a coach. So right now, fans are seeing Urban Meyer self-destruct rapidly. (laughs) There's a big difference. Great popular coaches, big-name coaches of big-name schools in college, they get to recruit the players they want. Yep. Head coaches in the NFL don't get to do that. First of all, there's salary caps. Uh, There's a draft. There's a general manager who gets to weigh in, and at least the first year, they get the players that are already there. Yep. Right? So they're severely handicapped, and a lot of college coaches can't make the transition to pro coaching because of that. Well, you do the same thing when you handicap your advertising with what you've already got as it already is, regardless of market needs, interests, desires, etc. of the moment, right? So you've seen, again, I'll reference Red because I was in the room, Robin. You've, if you've watched her and her merry band of IT consultants, um, um, it, 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 they've transitioned their emphasis over the last few years from IT that grows your business, IT that manages your business, to IT that protects your business from cyber crime. Yep. Most of it's the same IT. Okay. And it certainly is the same IT consultant. Yep. Okay. But it's in tune with the conversation occurring in the marketplace and 
the thing that is most on their mind. So, like, I subscribe to a magazine called, called CEO. And it's a magazine read by the CEOs of the Fortune 1000. So 90% of it is horse manure. <laughs> but, but you can spot trends, right? And it was very apparent to me, starting four years ago. So a lot of the articles in CEO magazine and why I started reading it in the first place is years, some years back I was doing a lot of work for the state of Oklahoma, um, a member of ours, yep. Larry Parman, on marketing to get businesses to move to Oklahoma. And CEO magazine is, was full of that kind of stuff, ads and articles uh, about how you pick a location, why you should move from a blue state to a red, all that stuff. Then the article was more about human resources stuff. Okay? It became about, oh, my God, how do we manage the new sensitivities and the language and the millennial employee and on and on and on. Then it became, how do we handle cybercrime? Because our humans are idiots, so they can be, you know, caused, they can be caused to open the door. (laughs) And we got everybody else's data. We don't just have our own. So this became the thing, right? I, by the way, sent some of those articles to, to Red. I said, dear, and I bought, I invested in cybersecurity ETFs, <laughs> right? I didn't know enough to pick a company, but I knew enough to pick a sector. I said, money is going to move here, right? Now, if you're her and you're advertising to a certain size and type of business, you have to change the messaging in the same way that you might move your investment dollars, right? Uh, I literally moved money out of sales automation investments into cybersecurity investments, and I did a lot better because that's where attention was and that's where money was going. So so most people's advertising is handicapped and restricted and boxed in by the thing they've already got to sell and its status quo, what it is and the way it is. Dan, why don't we talk um, a little bit about sweating the small stuff and all the details that go into um, – advertising in your no BS, you know, ruthless management of people and profits. You talk a lot about the details and sweat and small stuff. How does that apply to what we do in our advertising? So generally, one of the worst books ever written is titled Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Immensely popular in its time. Um, And popular for an obvious reason. Oh, great, I could be successful and ignore all the details. Terrific, (laughs) right? Well, who wouldn't want to do that, right? However, you ain't going to find a highly successful person or a highly successful business uh, who is adhering to that philosophy in any aspect of what they're doing, particularly when they're spending money. So advertising costs money. Even the advertising that people now think of as free, it costs money because time gets invested in it. 
attention gets invested in it, reputation gets invested in it, thought gets invested in it. So yes, you can now take your smartphone instead of hiring a video crew. And you can hang a flashlight from a rope in the corner. <laughs> and you can do a Facebook Live, right? And, oh, that's free. Yeah, but it's not free for all the reasons I just said. You invested thought in it, attention to it, time in it. You took time away for something else to do it. You invested brand and reputation in it and so forth. So even the advertising that people think of as free isn't free. But most Powerful advertising also costs money out of pocket. Often, the reason advertising fails is not because of a big thing. Sometimes it is. Um, And then it's usually kind of easy to spot. But often, it's failing by incremental failure. It's almost there. Um, direct mail will be almost there. To be simplistic, you needed 2% to break even, and it's at 1.4. Okay? It's not at zero. Right? It's, by the way, it's very hard to zero. You have to like work at it. <laughs> um, uh, a print ad that costs $35,000 and returns 22000 for many people, that would be a failure. But it's closer to where it needs to be than it is to zero, right? So um, so now it's probably about a combination of little things within the ad as well as around the ad that are going to make the difference. So you are eking out the success you want by the little stuff that is incremental. So in a business, if you think about it, so let's take the seminar business, right? If you really do the math, the first, let's say there's going to be a 1,000 people in the room. Roughly the first 300 in the room, you probably lost money getting them there all your advertising expense, all your marketing expense got you the 300. The next 300, uh, you're, you're now starting to be profitable. It's the last 300 where all the profit is because you've already absorbed all your costs of sale. So if you don't do all the little stuff to get the last 300, the last 30, for heaven's sakes, right? So really the same thing is true with advertising. It's about incremental. I mean, I can tell you, I spent 15 years uh, doing a lot of work in the TV infomercial business. And yes, the broad architecture is pretty formulaic, and it's easily observable. But it is time, it is time and space limited. You only have 28 minutes and 30 seconds. And one way or another, it's divided into three segments with the call to action in between. Uh, uh, now, we, you got eight people sitting in a small editing room with leftover pizza and beer <laughs> and, um, and sweat smell 
debating over whether we leave these three words in or we clip her comment by these three words in order to gain the 12 seconds we need to put this in that we want to put in. We are sitting there literally sweating, because most edit are sweat boxes, <laughs> um, uh, uh, literally sweating milliseconds. Um, three words out of a half an hour. And really all advertising is that way. Dan, why don't we get into the, the meat of this? So you say there's really four different types of advertising in our toolbox, and certainly it's kind of like a construction project, right? Not every project needs a hammer. Not every project needs a saw. Some you need, you know, a jackhammer. Um, but let's talk first about, you know, brand awareness and image. Certainly this is not uh, your favorite cup of tea, but there's a place for it. There's, look, there's absolutely a place for it. Um, for a lot of small businesses and entrepreneurs or businesses in the startup growth stage, um, brand building is unaffordable. It requires an enormous amount of patient capital. If you want to be the next Geico and you're going to build a brand like that from scratch, um, you better have raised a truckload a truckload of money. And you better have very patient investors because it's probably going to take years before people are even really aware, right? And so you see companies... Uh, untuck it, okay? So the shirt for people that want to be slobs but don't want to be characterized as slobs, <laughs> right? That's what this is. <laughs> so he's trying to build a brand, but he is doing it as a byproduct of direct response. So they're offsetting at least some of the cost of making that brand in its concept known by driving people to a website to directly buy shirts, by mailing out catalogs to directly sell shirts, uh, to opening brick-and-mortar locations of their own to directly sell shirts. So for many businesses, traditional Madison Avenue brand-building advertising is unaffordable. Um, the, like if you look at Ogilvy's career, the Hathaway shirt brand development, um, you, you will probably be in bankruptcy court if you try and follow that model. So I have always aimed clients at brand building as a happy byproduct of direct response, okay? Um, So that let's at least try and get the buck back. If we can't get the buck, let's get 80% 80 of the buck back, right? But let's not spend the whole buck on brand identity. And sometimes brand building gets in the way 
of sales results, then now you have a conflict you have to resolve in your own mind, your own objectives, and your own available capital because it can be a distraction, right? I, um, uh, uh, I did a beat the control for Weight Watchers years ago. And Weight Watchers is the most recognized brand in weight loss. Today, it and Nutrisystems are probably ipso ipso. Uh, but if you ask people to name three diets, most people are going to include Weight Watchers. Certainly if they're over the age of 40, they're going to say Weight Watchers is one of the three. So the brand identity is well established. Um, the bad news is that a lot of people attach facts that they believe are facts to that brand. So then if you ask somebody that names it, well, tell me something about it, they'll all sort of tell you the same stuff. Okay? It's the only one that works, but it's really, really hard. Uh, and you got to count stuff, and I don't like to count. And you got to go to meetings, and, and you got to get weighed in front of other people. Right? So now the brand gets in the way of the best ad you could possibly create, right? I mean, I knew that. So one of the very first things I did in my direct mail campaign against their existent direct mail campaign and their agency's new direct mail campaign is I buried the brand. You found out I was talking to you about Weight Watchers on page 12, and I hid it. Right, and um, and I won, but then it never got used beyond the test because the board had to see it, and they all you know had conniptions <laughs> because where's the brand? Right, we need to have the brand on everything, and that happens in a lot of niches with a lot of companies and with a lot of businesses, and so it can even be a conflict problem that you have to resolve. Um, Awareness advertising is a little bit different because awareness advertising can be tied to brand or not tied to brand. So awareness advertising can be um, detached from brand. Now, of course, you don't get the happy byproduct of every ad building the brand, right? But so if you take... Um, uh, Bob Stupak's Vegas World, which was built with pure direct response advertising, uh, selling a vacation package. It cost a Rubicon where its direct response had actually established a brand. Um, a lot of people recognized the name Vegas World. They recognized the name Bob Stupak, and now they knew things about it some of which were not terrific. (laughs) Um, And so Bob would often also run unbranded awareness advertising, right, Uh, in California papers. Before you come to Vegas the next time, did you know that you can get over $1,000 worth of free from the casinos just by asking for it? Okay. uh, here's call this free recorded message for the secret to right, and now 
he would drive response in a way that a different kind of response than a brand disclosure ad might get. Dan, why don't we talk about the second um, you know, type, which is the one-step sale for the, for the buy-now customer. And then let's talk about integration of calls to action for information so that you kind of bridge the gap and you're not leaving behind some of the people who aren't buy now. Well, so another reason that... And Robin actually mentioned it too. Yeah. So another reason most advertising fails is because it requires every respondent to be ready to buy now. And there's almost no target audience um, where everybody is ready to buy this weekend. And there is almost no media that reaches only people who are ready to buy this weekend. So you have a waste factor. So your ad may be terrific, right? Uh, Ogilvy and Leo Burnett and Halbert all came back from the grave and wrote your ad. It's spectacular. But if too many of the eyeballs you are paying for to see it aren't ready to buy now, and the only option it offers them, the only reason to respond is buy now, your waste kills you economically. You got a good ad, the prospects it does bring in buy now, but the waste factor eats you economically and you wind up with a failure. The failure is not the ad. The failure is the waste, right? So if you start out, this is the equivalent of um, um, taking a $20 bill out of your pocket and ripping it into three pieces and getting in a poker game and only using one-third of it, (laughs) right? Um, uh, You're probably going to be in trouble, right? So one-step advertising, it has its place. Um, It can work. But you see the majority of advertising built this way more out of ignorance and sloth than... Um, and copycatism, this is the way things are done in our business, than uh, out of split-tested results and mathematical analysis. So at bare minimum, which again, Robin described, I will usually drive a client into at least a secondary reason you might respond to us if you are not ready to buy right now. That usually is an information offer. Not always, but it can be. Um, so, and even with a free offer, um, I just finished a copywriting project, and the main offer is to respond to schedule a consultation call, a free call. 
and it's all done very well. Here's the 27 things you're going to learn on the call, even if we don't do business together, all, all of that. However, you got to be pretty close to ready to buy now to respond to a free consultation offer. Mm-hmm. So like you see most practices, uh, again, a chiropractic practice, certainly in the late 70s and the 80s, the offer was free exam, free x-rays. Well, you got to be pretty far along, yep. right, yep. to decide to, or you got to be in just crippling pain, right? Yep. You got to be a buy now patient, right? You got to be at the point of, okay, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get an exam. And if it shows that I got the problem I think I got, I'm buying, right? Well, that leaves out a ton of people. So I will almost always do the secondary offer, which in the case I just described to you is if you're not ready to have this consultation call, at least let us send you our free book, blah, 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 right? Then in the sequence, a third option will be raised if you won't even let us send you the free book. At least go watch this seven-minute video uh, where you will see a CEO just like you talking about their experience. You don't have to log on to see it. Nobody captures your email. Nobody's going to follow up. Just go watch it. And so we will step down and allow you to have a reason to respond even though you're not yet close to buying now if you follow our guys in the mattress industry. Yep. uh, Jeff G. Yep. Well, you know, they... The mattress industry is all about buy now offers only. This weekend is the sale of the century because it's Ben Franklin's birthday or it's National Pigeon Month or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> and, um, and this is the sale of the century and prices will never be so low and you can have 184 monthly payments with no interest, which, by the way, if you need 184 payments to buy a mattress... The mattress is not going to give you a good night's sleep. You've got <laughs> bigger problems. but um, uh, And so all the advertising is that. There's never even a secondary offer of, hey, let us send you the free book on 21 things you can do to get a better night's sleep without buying a new mattress. Yep. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and there's certainly never an alternative offer well, of don't come in. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. You should go watch our... Video. Well, it's interesting, right? So Jeff does have a book, right? And they got a yep. short book. Um, a couple months back, I included in the newsletter actually an example of an ad from a mattress company, which actually was in Naples. And as soon as I saw the ad, the first person I thought about is Jeff. And I said, Jeff, are these people your clients? He said, yes, they've been a longtime client and uh, easy to spot our people, right? Like, So, you know, the offer was sale of the century, but down here it said, you know, if you need... A better night's sleep. I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, go to our website or come in the store, and we'll give you our free book. And then uh, the other one that's interesting. Uh, there's a gentleman. I think I just shared it maybe a month or two ago in the newsletter. Um, Cornerstone Kitchens. They're in Naples, uh, Southwest Florida. Guy came down from New York or New Jersey. Started with one little shop. 
the guy's got an enormous business now, but he's running ads, uh, beautifully done about dovetail joints and like just shows the craftsmanship of it all done in house. But he said, if you're not ready, go to our website and get the 21 questions or 10 questions you must ask any kitchen remodeler before you make a risky investment, blah, blah, blah. And the guy's built an enormous company with that. Yeah. So I had to some months ago, um, I can't handle big staircases. Uh, it's one of the remaining, you know, little handicaps I have. I have enough of a balance issue that going up or down a big staircase is not a smart thing for me to do. I mean, I can do it, but it's dumb, right? So I'm getting a stair lift. I ain't happy about it, but the alternative is worse. <laughs> so I'm getting a stair lift. So I call the guys advertising on TV who are offering the free guide, buyer's guide, to stair lifts. Okay? And, uh, but I'm a buy now guy. So that doesn't stop me, right? I'm like, you don't need to send me the guide. You need to send me a guy, right? <laughs> and I don't give a shit how much it costs, and I want it installed on Tuesday. That's I'm a buy now guy, right? It doesn't get in my way. But imagine if their advertising was only for me. So how many other people are evolving towards that situation? That purchase. And they are not anywhere near ready to act, right? you don't get to start a conversation with them. You don't get to put them in a funnel. You, you, you don't get to hover. You don't need to educate them. You don't get to step in front of competition. Now, who they buy from is random, because okay? they're going to buy when they're ready to buy now from pretty much whoever pops up in their face at that moment, right? whereas you can take it out of random and you can control it and you can have, I've always called them pipelines, so you can have a bunch of people now who come to you who are ready to buy now as a result of your advertising. You can have some other people in the pipeline who are 30 days away, some other people who are 60 days away, some other people who are 90 days away, and why wouldn't you want that for the same ad dollar? Right, And if you don't have that, often the advertising fails financially when the ad did not fail, the ad campaign did not fail from an effectiveness standpoint, it failed because of the waste. Dan, why don't we touch uh, a little bit more on the third type, which is lead generation, multi-step with branded versus unbranded. I know you touched on it a little bit with Stupac, but why don't we talk about... Uh, what's the difference for branded versus unbranded, and where is it appropriate versus, and why, why do you want to do both types? Well, so, and some will run both branded and unbranded <clears throat> campaigns in the same media at the same time. Right. Um, Meaning they'll have an ad that's full-blown branded, full blown branded and, and they'll, they'll have, have one that's ad direct that's response that's totally blind that's and a totally phone number, blind. and there's nothing. That's exactly right. And that's almost always where there is a, uh, a relatively mature or known brand. 
because almost every brand, when it is known and people in a target market recognize it, they also have a bias about it. They have a understanding that they think of. So I've had to reinvent and do blind campaigns for years for a client of mine, Craig Proctor, in the real estate niche. All right, even better example is Greg Stanley, uh, Whitehall Management in the dental niche. Be- and Greg has a pristine brand. So if you survey dentists about Greg Stanley and Whitehall Management, you will rarely hear anything bad. You will almost always hear good things. Now, you would think, fantastic, right? All we got to do is put up a Whitehall sign and people will flock to us. No, because if you ask the second question, well, what can you tell me about Greg and Whitehall? They would say to you, the very first time I had to deal with this for Greg, they would say to you, well, Greg's the guy who tells you you got to get your office overhead below 50%, right? You've got to have a staff incentive program with different incentives for different staff members depending on their purpose, which is complicated. Uh, You've got to uh, take money off the top of every dollar that comes to you and invest it in municipal bonds. And you, so there's five things, okay? And they can all name the five things. Therefore, why come to a Whitehall seminar? They think they already know the seminar. They don't have anything bad to say about it. They don't have any curiosity about it either, right? They think they already know it. So now the brand is in the way, despite the fact that it's a very good brand. Now, an unbranded ad, right, that can be made to structure a particular promise, that now draws in people who would not respond to the branded ad, and now you stick them in a funnel, you begin a communication process with them, and you have an opportunity, right? Sometimes there's a brand that has a less pristine reputation. And to a significant segment of a market, there's bad things thought about it that are erroneous. You won't fix that perception in a single ad. But if you have an opportunity to communicate with a big box of stuff, with a series of communications, etc., you have an opportunity to fix it. So your unbranded ad will again bring you the leads who want the solution you have, who would not respond if they heard the brand ahead of the message. So sometimes in lead generation, you'll use one, you'll use the other, you'll use them in rotation, you'll even use them literally side by side. Now, the thing about lead generation advertising, and you're probably going to ask about it later, but 
so the main reason lead generation advertising fails, uh, one, it gets ahead of itself, meaning it tries to start selling um, rather than just generating a qualified lead. Uh, and the even bigger reason it fails is because it dumps leads into chaos. So it generates leads, but then it dumps them into chaos. There is no real system for sorting, qualifying, uh, differential messaging to different leads within the lead population, organized follow-up, etc. So it dumps them in to absolute chaos, and um, the advertising gets blamed because ultimately prospects don't convert and the cost per sale is too high. The cost per lead was okay, but the cost per sale is no good. Well, that's not the ad's fault, right? That's now what happens to the lead after the lead is generated's fault. Dan, why don't we talk a little bit about the hybrid model, which is the fourth and final one. And, you know, in some cases, the the mothership, there might be a corporate entity. They're doing some branded stuff, but at a local level franchise, they might be doing some direct response stuff. How does this work together? (laughs) They better be. Uh, Look, the bigger the the corporation, the dumber it is generally, and when it comes to advertising. And about the only time it gets smart, is for short periods of time under extreme duress. Right. So, and part of that is because the big corporate entity, the mothership, if you will, has an entirely different agenda than does the local business owner, right? They may be publicly traded, so they have Wall Street perceptions to care about Um, uh, they may be in a group of industry peers that they care about their opinions. Uh, So there's all these constituencies that they are more concerned about than the buyer. And so the buyer has to take a back seat to what else they feel they need to accomplish with their advertising. It's why it's very hard to get big corporations to do direct response, and corporations that get built from small to big tend to abandon it. Um, I had a client for a number of years built literally from zero uh, to a billion dollars through hardcore direct response. The wheels Uh, have fallen off the bus. Yeah, the last few years before its sale, the wheels were sort of taken off the bus um, so as not to scare buyers away. Um, And as soon as a big, dumb company got their paws on it, (laughs) the first thing they did is undo the remaining direct response (laughs) stuff that made it work. So the local franchise owner, the subway owner, the Miracle Air center operator, the cool sculpting, uh, not franchisee, but licensee, licensee, um, et cetera, uh, they cannot 
just replicate the national advertising with a band at the bottom of it with their identity. You'll find it amusing because the proactive problem, the cool sculpting people do the same. Of course. No, uh, not an actual client. Uh, right across the testimonial photo. Of course. <laughs> so why not go get an actual client, you dumbasses? <laughs> I mean, rather than have to say that. Yeah, right? exactly. But, but see, the key word, though, is dumbasses, <laughs> right? So their advertising is in part being crafted by their lawyers, right, who ought not be allowed anywhere near it. Um, so at, you will see this dichotomy and it's necessary um, and at the local level for example there's a lot of things the local business can do that to be fair the national company really can't uh, my no BS grassroots marketing book is really all about that right the national company really cannot go do pancake breakfast for the fire <laughs> department and, you know, there's yeah. stuff they can't do um, and the, but the local advertising has to be DR because the local merchant cannot afford brand and awareness advertising. There's too much waste and too little accountability in it. He's using his own money. Invisalign is using Wall Street's money. Charlie Brown, the dentist, is using Charlie Brown's money. These are two entirely different situations. Invisalign, every time they run an ad for Invisalign, they're trying to support their share price. Charlie Brown's trying to get somebody in to stick braces on. Right? These are two entirely different businesses. Therefore, they cannot have the same advertising strategy, and they cannot have the same advertising. Arguably... The national campaign for Invisalign may be succeeding for Invisalign's purposes, but it will fail miserably for Dr. Brown in San Marcos, Texas. Dan, uh, you mentioned it. Um, many businesses have their advertising fail because they don't have a start-to-finish uh, system for attracting customers, clients, and patients. Why don't we talk about... What should the system look like from lead generation through nurture? And then, you know, it needs to go into what we talk about here is indoctrination. So before you even advertise, there's the issue of audience or market, right? There's the issue of who you should be advertising to attract. And a lot of business owners don't really give that a lot of thought, right? They're like, they're, they believe in, in, in uh, democracy, meaning every customer is the same yep. and every prospect is the same. And that is definitely not true. It isn't even true at the local level. So like we're in Cleveland or outside of Cleveland in Independence, Ohio. Um, so we are on the um, uh, east side of Cleveland. If you're, so between the east side and the west side, okay, two entirely different, two entirely different target markets. Okay. Uh, we're very big on ethnic neighborhoods. 
So we have an area that is Polish. You can tell in the summer because every yard has pink flamingos. <laughs> um, um, and the only color of socks sold is white. I <laughs> um, uh, see you can still do Polish jokes. <laughs> it's really about the only ethnicity you can still do, by the way. Um, uh, so there's a Polish neighborhood. Therefore, there's a culture and a cultural reference situation there that mm-hmm. is different than the Jewish neighborhood in Beechwood, right? So the photograph you show makes a difference. So all markets are this way. So even before you advertise, you really got to give some thought to who you're advertising to, who you should be advertising to, the dog whistles you're going to embed, who you want to attract, and perhaps who you don't want to. So that's before we even get to ads and advertising. Then advertising, um, except for one step, buy now customers only, come in this weekend and buy. Advertising never completes a sale. Advertising starts a sale. Therefore, advertising is dependent on everything that happens behind it after someone reacts to it and responds to it for it to succeed or fail. So the phone script, if there's a phone number in the ad that I can call, the phone script now is going to have a determinate effect on whether the ad is judged a failure or a success. The voice of the person who answers the phone is going to have a material effect. Now, at a local level in small business, some of this is statistically insignificant. You wouldn't be able to measure it. In a bigger ad campaign in business, believe me, you can measure it. I mean, it's, it's there. And just because it is statistically insignificant, a bunch of these little things, again, added together, become statistically significant as a whole, right? So now, what happens when the person drives to the business? Affects whether the ad is judged a success or not. Is the parking lot clean or dirty? Is it well lit or not well lit? Is it empty? Uh, no good. <laughs> no good. High anxiety, right? If yep. you got to go rent cars and move them around, that's what you do. But the parking lot's got to be busy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that's sort of the experience aspect of this. Um, if you if they come into say an office, like I am a big um, um, a pet peeve is and it surfaces. Geez, I don't know. I've fought it off three or four times in Cairo, where the trend the trend is uh, to dress the staff in logo polo shirts. 
in the professional practice. Well, that's a subway artist, right? That's, that's fast food. That's not somebody I want solving. Uh, that's not my idea of a healthcare professional. I watch television. Okay? Healthcare professionals have suits and ties and white jackets and little badges and stethoscopes, yep. right? And the fact that a chiropractor never uses a stethoscope is irrelevant. He should have one around his neck anyway. Um, so that's the experiential, you know, factor that now all slops backward onto did your ad campaign succeed or not. Then there's the marketing that you alluded to of a whole issue of how is the person who raised their hand and expressed interest. However they did that, they called, they went and visited a website, they walked in and walked around and looked. However it is that they expressed interest, how are they handled now after that moment, right? And um, is there a organized system for sifting and sorting because no matter how good a targeting job you do, they all won't be the same, for sifting and sorting and putting them into subgroups so that you talk to them differently, and then what do they get? What happens to them? Step one, step two, step three, step four. Is it consistent, right, in messaging and appearance and all of that? Is it persistent, right? And so if that is not organized and it is not thorough, right, then it will slop back on and often the ad campaign itself will be blamed. And look, this can, even when it is set up right, which mostly it's not, of course. But even when it is set upright, it is very easy for it to fall into disrepair even when it is owned by smart people. Right? So I'll give you an example. And, uh, and these people are really, really smart. I'm taking nothing away from them, and I mean zero disrespect. But three years ago, I guess now, um, I was called in to do some consulting for High Point University. The president and I have known each other since the beginning of time. Um, their marketing person and his assistant have grown fast. They were smart to start with, but now they are brilliant. Um, um, and I was called in, as I usually am, for better ads, right? We need better ads, we need better marketing, we need better messaging. And I hadn't been in a number of years, so I insisted on going and seeing the product as it now existed, which is the university, the campus, the buildings, yep. the, you know, all of that. And, uh, and I took the tour. And the tour had a lot of flaws, 
that was structured correctly. So again, the overall architecture was right, but man, there were some pieces within the architecture that had fallen into disrepair. There were problems that nobody was trying to solve, right? I, of course, said, this we got to fix, or the work I do over here is a bad investment, because A, I'm expensive. Uh, I'm not a cheap date. So you're going to invest a lot of money in me. Then you're going to invest a lot of money in implementing what I've done, and you're going to dump them into this part of your sales funnel that's broken, right? So everything matters, right? Everything matters. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.